History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 476 episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, who just did a little ta-ching with her cute little face there. This episode, we have a location that was suggested by our listener, Jennifer Billingham, and that is the Smoky Mountains. We've only driven through, but I absolutely love it, and I can't wait to go back to visit. I know. They're so great to see. I had no idea that there were so many legends connected to this and some hauntings going on as well. We're looking forward to sharing that with everyone. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Brandy. Very unique spelling on this one. B-R-A-N-D-E. Charity, Jamie, Josh, and Kathy, who is Tiffany's mom, just got done with her battle with cancer and is now battling something else. They've been in the ICU recently, so we just have our positive thoughts and prayers going that direction. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Naughty. In the summer of 2021, an old black and white photo started making the rounds on social media. The picture featured an old black and white photo of a cat on what appears to be a passport. The name of the passport holder is listed as Herman the Cat, and his occupation is recorded as Expert Mouser. The social media postings generally state that around the turn of the 20th century, sea cats needed their own passports. These days, many people take their fur kids abroad and are required to have proper documentation and health clearances to do so. What likely gave this story legs or four paws, was an old article run in the New York Times on January 15, 1943. It featured Herman's quote-unquote passport, even including his stamped paw print, and it read, With port precautions being what they are, even the cat must have his identification card. Although there's been no evidence found that sea cat passports were actually a thing, the fun idea of such a necessity for that time certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of March, on the 3rd in 1831, George M. Pullman was born. 
George Mortimer Pullman, and may I say that's a beautiful middle name. It certainly is. I really fancy that name. Was an American industrialist born in Brockton, New York in 1831. In 1845, Pullman's family moved to Albion, New York for his father's work on the Erie Canal. George loved to watch the packet boats travel the canal when he was young as they carried mail and passengers. In 1864, he developed his first railroad sleeper or quote-unquote palace car after the design of the packet boats. When President Lincoln was assassinated, Pullman arranged to have his body transported from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois using one of his Pullman sleeper cars. This brought George national attention due to the hundreds of thousands of people who lined the train's route to pay their respect to the deceased president. Shortly thereafter, orders for his sleeper car began pouring in. Eventually, Pullman introduced a sleeper car with an attached kitchen and dining area. And the company hired African-American freedmen as Pullman porters, who became very well known and widely respected for their elite service. As his company grew and production increased, George decided to purchase 4,000 acres south of Chicago to establish Illinois' first company town. The aptly named town of Pullman, Illinois, is today a historic town which hosts a walking tour with stops at key sites to learn about this model industrial community and its stories from a bygone era. The Smoky Mountains carry a certain mystique about them, and since they are part of the Appalachian Mountains, the Appalachian culture has enhanced them with a rich folklore. But it wasn't just the Europeans who felt the peculiar ethos of the region. Native American tribes have long shared stories of the supernatural and incorporated pieces of their mythology into this land. This is a gorgeous area that many people enjoy for its natural beauty, but few probably know about the spiritual side of this ground. Join us as we share the history, legends, and spirits of the Smoky Mountains. Smoky Mountains are also known as the Great Smoky Mountains and or the Smokies and are part of the Appalachian Mountains that rise along the Tennessee and North Carolina border. If you have seen them in person, you know why they carry that moniker. Early morning clouds and mist really do make it look like the mountains are covered in a blanket of smoke. It's something everyone should have on their bucket list. Kelly, I'll never forget us coming over the top of that one hill and looking out over the Smoky Mountains and I was like, Oh my gosh, this must be why they call them the Smoky Mountains. Look at it. I know, it was gorgeous. This is home to 187,000 acres of old growth forest. And much of this has been protected since 1934 by the National Park Service as part of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. This national park is the most visited park in America with over 11 million visitors every year. I was actually shocked. I thought that Yellowstone would be number one or Yosemite. Right, as did I. The park is also an UNESCO World Heritage Site. The forest here is home to a large black bear and salamander population. And I threw that last part in for you. (laughs) I was going to say, I want to go find some salamanders crawling across the streams. Yeah, they have a ton of animals here, but they're very well known for their black bears. And it has a lot of unique salamanders, I guess. 
the Smokies have a human history that stretches back to prehistoric Paleo-Indians. This was Cherokee territory until the French and Indian War when settlers came to the mountains. The Americans launched an invasion of Cherokee territory during the American Revolution because the tribe had aligned with the British. American forces burned many villages. By 1805, the Cherokee had ceded the Smokies to the U.S. government. However, some did manage to stay on the eastern band. They eventually bought back land from the government. What had happened here is that the Cherokee were removed under the Indian Removal Act and sent west on the Trail of Tears. But one Cherokee in the Smokies named Solly fought the removal and he gathered a small group with him. Eventually, Solly was captured and executed and the group he had with him was offered the opportunity to live if they would renounce their Cherokee tribal citizenship and become U.S. citizens. They did, and that is why the Eastern Band is still here. Forts were built, and then many settlers eventually immigrated to the area and became the mountain people, some of whom were loggers, others were moonshiners, and there were farmers who would grow sorghum and corn. Once the government started buying up land in the Smokies, it was just a matter of time before the mountain people would be run off. Logging would come to a stop as well. The animals would now be free to roam safely. One of the unfortunate casualties of humans in the area was that the cougars who had once called this home were all hunted out by the settlers. Can you imagine hunting out the cougars? No, because as I understand it, they have a several miles long territory, oftentimes for just one mountain lion at a time, unless it's during mating season. Yeah, and I don't know if they were hunting them for their hides or something else, because I mean, obviously, you don't usually eat cougar and stuff, so... Well, unless they were going after livestock. Maybe. That's the only thing I can think of. And maybe it's different in this portion of the United States compared to California. I just know that in California, their range is very, very large for just Mm -hmm. one animal. It was the same thing in Colorado. And I think it's the same here down in Florida. We've got them here, too. If you hear a story of a cougar sighting in the Smokies, it is just that, a story. Any modern day claims have been proven to be hoaxes. And it would probably be about the same thing with wolves, because I know they tried to reintroduce wolves here. I think it was the red wolf or something, and they said it went horribly wrong. I don't know what all happened, but they decided to not have the wolves there anymore. wonder if they created a new type of animal like a koi wolf, because I know that that's happened in the past. Oh, with the mating with the coyotes and stuff? Right. Maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I just know that they said it did not go well. The highest peak is Klingman's Dome, and there's an observation tower atop it at 6,643 feet, which I always kind of yawn at, Kelly. I know I say this all the time since Uh, I grew up near the Rockies. I'm like, 6,000 feet. What a short little thing. La-di-da, you and your mountains. (laughs) So used to 14ers. (laughs) The Civilian Conservation Corps built most of the trails, infrastructure, and fire towers. And of course, this all came in about the same time that the park was being put in during the Great Depression and stuff. The cities that surrounded the park are Sevierville, Pigeon Forge, and Gatlinburg. Each of these cities has hauntings and so could be considered part of the Haunted Smokies. We knew we wanted to include the legends directly connected to the park, but what about places in these cities? We decided to include a couple of those. So I know like Gatlinburg has its own ghost tour, so there's probably several haunted places in the town. But I grabbed one of the places that comes up on lists all the time when you talk about Haunted Smoky Mountains. So that's kind of what we did here. Otherwise, this could have gone on forever. I'm sure Pigeon Forge has some stuff, too. And Dollywood, for all we know, Dollywood could be haunted. Could be. This is an area that you and I have long wanted to go visit. So hopefully we'll be able to get there in the next couple of years. 
Jennifer, who suggested this location, loves the area and has visited many times from the time she was a child. She wrote, There is so much energy in these areas, but there was one site a couple of years ago we unexpectedly visited that was up a steep hill that we abruptly came upon. And the energy just intuitively forced me to stop and tell my son and husband no and not to go in further. It didn't feel right, and we felt watched after that as we walked through the woods more. Maybe our minds were getting a little too into themselves, but there was definitely an energy shift after that. So needless to say, we were intrigued as to what we would find. First up, we have a place that has been called Devil's Courthouse. And with locations like the Devil's Courthouse, it's no wonder that many people feel a certain mystical air about the place. The Devil's Courthouse is located at Whiteside Mountain in North Carolina, and early settlers gave this craggy rock face of soapstone that name because it looked like the devil himself. Legends went on to claim that he actually held court in a cave beneath the cliff. Beliefs about this cave go further back to the Cherokee, who claimed that this was the home of Sol Kalu, or Jutakula as Europeans came to spell it, and that's J-U-T-A-C-U-L-L-A, who was a giant with a voice like thunder who carried arrows made from lightning. He danced in the cave and carried out judgments there. In Cherokee mythology, he was in charge of the hunt, so he would be invoked in hunting rites and rituals. Next, we have Spearfinger. The Cherokee have another piece of creepy folklore. The Cherokee have a female monster they call Utalunta, which means the one with pointed spear. The more common name for this creature is Spearfinger, and that is because she has a sharp finger on her right hand that seems to be made from obsidian. Yikes. Ouch. (laughs) She uses it to cut her victims. Spearfinger had stone-like skin and blood stained her mouth because she ate the liver of her victims. Yummy. Organ meat. (laughs) It's supposed to be good for you. Spearfinger sounded like thunder when she walked because she crushed rocks beneath her feet and her voice echoed through the Smokies. Spearfinger could shapeshift into family members of her child victims. Her favorite spot was to walk the trail that joined Chilhawi Mountain and the Little Tennessee River. The Cherokee believed that she lived on Whiteside, which was a thunder mountain. Said to roam Noland Creek Trail and Whiteside Mountain, Spearfinger may be one of the creepiest Cherokee folklore traditions. This mythology represents the belief that the Cherokee had that shapeshifters stalked the mountains. And that Devil's Courthouse is at Whiteside Mountain too, so they definitely, there was something about that mountain that Definitely had a mythology to them. Next, we have the Wampus Cat. And where there's a national park, there just has to be a cryptid or two, right? Right. The Wampus Cat is a mythological creature in the legends of the Cherokee. There was a Cherokee woman who was curious about the secret and sacred ceremonies of the elders. It was, of course, forbidden for her to watch. She's a woman, after all. But one night, she snuck into a spot where she could watch such a ceremony, and she was caught. Her punishment was a curse that turned her into a half-bear, half-cat. She was left to roam throughout the years, searching for livestock and whining into the night. People claim to hear that whining around their campsites, and many people have seen the golden glow of the wampus cat's eyes. They've described the animals looking like a mountain lion, but with six legs instead of four. Others describe a more amphibious creature. And this makes me wonder where the terminology cattywampus comes from which I always thought it meant off-kilter, like mm-hmm. if it's cattywampus, it's not lined up square or what have you. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Kelly, shall we go down that hole? Let's do it. Okay, here we go. Hello? Hello? 
Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. So cattywampus, and it's spelled just like you would think it would be, C-A-T-T-Y-W-A-M-P-U-S. This is a variant of catawampus, which is another example of grand 19th century American slang. They have other words like bumfuzzled and collywobbles, <laughs> which I, I haven't heard those before. In addition to askew, which is what you were saying it would be like, mm-hmm. catawampus may refer to a, quote, imaginary fierce wild animal <laughs> or may mean savage and destructive. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, who would have ever thought that? I just love going down these rabbit holes. So that was what Marion Webster had to say about this. Now I'm looking at the etymology here. And it says it first appeared as a noun, catawampus, in Dickens' Martin Chuzzlewit, which he wrote in 1843, though it probably was first recorded as a noun in American works shortly before that. In that sense, it suggested some sort of hobgoblin or other frightening fantastical creature likely influenced by catamount, another word for a cougar or other large cat shortened from catamountain or cat of the mountain. And this is the passage in which it appears. Am I rightly informed, he says, not exactly though his nose, but as if he'd got a stoppage in it very high up, that you're a-going to the Wally of Eden. I heard some talk on it, I told him. Oh, says he, if you should ever happen to go to bed there, you may, you know, he says, in course of time as civilization progresses, don't forget to take an axe with you. I looks at him tolerable hard. Fleas, says I, and more, says he. Wampires, says I, and more, says he. Mosquitoes, perhaps, says I, and more, says he. What more, says I? Snakes more, says he. Rattlesnakes. You're right to a certain extent, stranger. There air some catawampus chars in the small way, too, as graze upon a human pretty strong. But don't mind them, they're company. It's snakes, he says, as you'll object to, and whenever you wake and see one in an upright poster on your bed, he says, like a corkscrew with the handle off a sitting on s bottom ring, cut him down, for he means win him. All righty then. Glad you had to read that. (laughs) Clearly, I didn't have the accent to go with that one. More in line with its current meaning, the first part, caddy, may hark back to a now obsolete meaning of the word cater, which means to set or move diagonally, in the sense of caddy corner, which was originally catter corner, and perhaps changed spelling as a result of developments in American accents. The first part might also be related to the Greek prefix kata, K-A-T-A, which can suggest downward or toward, among other meanings. The second part's origin is unclear, but may be from the Scottish slang term wampish, which means to wriggle or twist about. Very wow. good. <laughs> Kelly, when you said that to me, I'm like, oh, come on. And then you were like, well, let's go down that rabbit hole and see. I used my one smarticle particle. You did. <laughs> well, that was fabulous. Now, how are we going to get out of this rabbit hole? Mort. Oh, looky, some damsels in distress. We need some help getting out of here. We didn't bring anything with us. Let me go find something. Here, kitty, kitty. Uh, Kelly, this rope that Mort threw down here, it feels kind of alive and it's got fur all over it. Oh my gosh, is this a cat's tail? (laughs) Mort! Oh, oh. Something has gone cattywampus here. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors.
And now on to the Enchanted Lake. The Cherokee called the Smokies the land of blue smoke. One of their favorite places here was Atagahi, an enchanted lake that humans cannot see. This is a sacred place meant for the creatures of the forest. They like to swim in it because the waters heal their wounds and sickness. A young Cherokee man really wanted to see the lake, so he spent days fasting and praying. The spiritual devotion paid off, and when he went into the forest, the lake emerged and he saw its stunning violet color. Then he saw groups of animals and waterfowl coming to the lake, and it was the most beautiful thing he ever saw. He set up a pile of rocks to mark the spot. The winter came and was brutal, and so the Cherokee began to starve. The young man knew that the enchanted lake would make a good place to hunt, so he set off to find his marker. When he got there, he saw a bear, and he shot an arrow into the animal's heart. The bear fell into the lake and was immediately healed. It climbed up on the shore and angrily yelled that the young man had betrayed the animals. Several other bears came out of the forest, and they all descended on the hunter, killing him. The Cherokee eventually found the young man's body in the snow, but the lake was nowhere to be seen. It is said that sometimes people who are standing on top of Klingman's Dome can see a morning mist rising from the magic lake. Next we have Cade's Cove. This is a broad and lush valley that is surrounded by mountains with lots of wildlife. For hundreds of years, the Cherokee hunted this valley. Europeans settled here in the early 1800s, and they built three churches, log houses, barns, and a gristmill. They lived here for a hundred years before the National Park was established. One interesting part of the community were their wiener cabins. Oscar Mayer? (laughs) It's actually spelled (laughs) W-E-A-N-E-R. And these were small cabins built for a son to take his new bride to live that was far enough away from his family for privacy, but they still could get help if needed. So it's like weaning them from the family. Isn't that interesting? Ah. (laughs) I'd never heard that term before. I don't know if other communities have done this in the past too, but it's the first time it's ever come across my radar. Most families willingly sold their land to the government for the formation of the park, but some had to go to court several times before finally losing their land or signing a life lease. By the end of the 1940s, no one was left in the community. Mavis and Basil Eastup lived in a two-room cabin in Cades Cove. Mavis had been born during a thunderstorm, and so she always had an extreme fear of lightning, and she was afraid she would be struck by lightning. So she kind of shares something in common with you, Kelly, because you almost got struck by lightning in your office that time. Oh, Lordy. Yeah, that was an episode. Thus, she never allowed her husband, Basil, to buy them a metal bed. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Mavis eventually died sometime later from a persistent illness. But before she passed, she made Basil promise that he wouldn't sell her beloved handmade quilts and that he wouldn't put any of them on a metal bed. Basil promised that he wouldn't, but things changed after he remarried a much younger woman. That's probably the problem. It's like, I'll do whatever she wants me to do. Her name was Truly, and she was too big for Mavis's wooden bed. So Basil bought them a metal bed. Truly got cold one winter night and asked Basil if they could put one of Mavis's quilts on the bed, and Basil said yes. This particular quilt was nicknamed the cussing cover because Mavis made it using one of Basil's red flannel shirts that he had worn during their first fight. A thunderstorm rumbled that night, and sure enough, a flash of light burst down through the house and knocked Truly out of bed. She could smell ozone and charring, and when she rolled over, she saw that Basil had been charred to a crisp. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, 
The quilt had no marks upon it. The quilt was okay. <laughs> yes, but poor Basil is fried crispy. Bacon. Legend claims the quilt was sold to a collector. And I hope it's not a true story, but I'm sorry I found some humor in that. Yeah, <laughs> I just terrible. love that they called the quilt the cussing cover too. Right. People claim that Kate's Cove is haunted. There have been tragedies and there have been murders. The gravestone of Gregory Russell reads, killed by North Carolina rebels. Pictures have captured orbs in the cemeteries and cabins, but the creepiest photo captured a woman's face coming out of the wall of the primitive Baptist church. She has sometimes been seen as a full-bodied apparition and sometimes just as a face. And although the buildings are abandoned, people claim to feel as though they are being watched by something they can't see. Next, we have the Roaring Fork Motor Trail. The Roaring Fork Trail has a hitchhiking ghost named Lucy. The story claims that Lucy died in a cabin fire in the early 1900s. A short time later, a man named Foster was riding his horse through the forest when he spotted Lucy. She was beautiful and appeared to need help. It was winter and cold and she was barefoot. He offered her a ride on his horse and gave her his coat. He got her nearly to her cabin when she jumped off of the horse and said her father wouldn't understand. Foster ran into Lucy several times and fell in love with her, and so he asked Lucy about talking to her father. She would always refuse and run off. He was persistent, and so he asked some of the neighbors what they knew about Lucy and where her home was. And they told him that a Lucy had died in a fire many years before and that her family had left the area. Now travelers in the area along Roaring Fork Motor Trail claim to see Lucy still looking for a ride. Now, apparently this cabin didn't burn to the ground and was repaired and rented out as a cabin on Roaring Fork. One family that had stayed there was pretty messy, and they had left stuff all over the kitchen and table before going to bed. When they awoke in the morning, they found the table set and everything cleaned up. Next, we have the Garden Plaza Hotel, which was formerly the Holiday Inn. And it's actually something else now, but we'll get into that in a moment here. The main road through Gatlinburg is US 441, and along this route was the Garden Plaza Hotel, which used to be the Holiday Inn. Back in the 1980s, this hotel was the scene of a horrible crime. In July of 1980, two teenage girls from Crestwood, Kentucky, decided to take a trip to Gatlinburg. They got separate rooms, 401 and 413, on the fourth floor of the Holiday Inn. The girls went out to dinner at a local steakhouse and lounge called The Rafters, where they met a local drifter. They were seen leaving with the man, and the next day, the girls were found murdered at the hotel. One was found in a stairwell that led to the roof, and the other was found in a room lying on the floor next to the bed. The drifter was found and arrested. At least, that's according to one story. Other stories claim that one girl was drowned in a bathtub, and the other was dragged to the roof and strangled. I did see, whatever the case is, these two girls did indeed end up murdered, and they had their names and everything in the newspaper accounts. And people began claiming that the hotel was haunted. Room 413 was the main location for much of the paranormal activity. People claimed to hear odd noises in the room, like bangs, screams, and even shrieks. There was also the sound of unseen people running in the hallway. And there was also running on the stairs. Activity was so bad that the Garden Plaza Hotel stopped renting out room 413. Another spirit at the hotel was said to belong to Alvin, who had been a longtime employee. He liked to hang out in the kitchen. His activity was of the poltergeist kind and usually entailed utensils flying through the air. But that all changed with the demolition of the hotel. 
A Hampton Inn was built in its place, and we aren't sure if any of the spirits are still there. So if you're ever in Gatlinburg and you stay at a Hampton Inn along US 441 and you're somewhere near the fourth level or anywhere, I guess, let us know if anything goes bump in the night. Ask for room 413. Yeah, I don't if know they if they have it, one. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if they still have one or not, but. Now on to the Greenbrier Restaurant, which is probably the most haunted location in Gatlinburg and is found off the beaten path at 370 Newman Road off of Highway 381. When one enters, the first room you see is an entry into what had been an old hunting lodge established in the 1930s. A woman named Blanche Moffat had built the cabin lodge and named it the Greenbrier Lodge. Her main customers were hunters and other travelers looking to get away from the city. She also ran part of the lodge as a boarding house for men working in the area. Blanche had a room upstairs, and she also had women traveling alone stay up there while single men bunked downstairs. This lodge ran similar to a bed and breakfast as Blanche made breakfast for guests in the morning. The first in-ground pool in Gatlinburg would be installed by Blanche at the lodge. Actors and actresses who attended the University of Tennessee in nearby Knoxville stayed at the lodge starting in the mid-50s all the way up into the mid-70s as they performed in plays at the Hunter Hills Theater in Gatlinburg. This amphitheater was one of the first in the southeast and provided entertainment during the summer months. After nearly 50 years in business, Blanche was getting tired, and in 1980 she decided to sell. Dean and Barbara Haddon became the new owners, and their six children helped turn the former hunting lodge into a restaurant. The Haddons decided to lease the property out in 1991, shortly before Dean passed away. The people who leased it didn't do well and shut the restaurant down fairly soon after opening. Barbara decided to reopen the Greenbrier in 1993, and today her son David, his wife Becky, and their son Jordan run the establishment. Everything we read about this place gives it great reviews for atmosphere and food. It's an upper-end restaurant, but everybody said it is well worth the money. It looks like it's got a delicious menu, and it's all like fresh, natural, local-type stuff, too. Nice. And on top of all of that... There's even more for us to love because the restaurant is reputedly haunted, a claim made by employees and patrons alike. Employees claim to have seen the ghost of a lady by the name of Lydia. The story is pretty typical. She was spurned at the altar. One can only imagine the heartache and anger that she suffered. Lydia had stayed at the Greenbrier Lodge the night before her wedding, and it was there that she had slipped into her wedding dress before the ceremony. So she returned there after being abandoned. She went to the second floor landing, tossed a rope up over the rafters, and hanged herself. The legend claims that she was buried in a nearby unmarked grave. The groom apparently got what was coming to him when a mountain lion killed him in the mountains when he went hunting. In another version that I saw of this story, it's possible that the groom was killed before the wedding by the mountain lion, and that's why he didn't show up. So he didn't, like, stand her up. He couldn't be there because he was dead. I don't know which came first, but... Clearly, I don't even know if this story actually happened. So, Sightings of Lydia began shortly after her death with her awakening a caretaker at the lodge with her mournful cries. She kept repeating, mark my grave, mark my grave. The caretaker had to endure several nights of this before he decided to go out and place a marker on the grave. After that was done, he never saw Lydia again. But the same cannot be said for the employees and patrons of the restaurant. Owner Becky Haddon said, today the ghost of Lydia still roams the old Greenbrier Lodge now our Greenbrier restaurant. Her spirit is often seen on the stairs of the second floor landing. Guests who eat here claim to see her small, sad figure wandering around from time to time. So clearly this is a place that embraces it 
I believe they hand out a pamphlet or something, or it's on their menu that they share with everybody who comes. So they love their story about Lydia. Murfreesboro Post journalist Dan Whittle wrote an article in 2014 about visiting the restaurant. Dan wrote, Jason, our table server, confessed he's never seen Lydia, but that fellow Greenbrier work associates have witnessed food items being knocked off food shelves in the restaurant pantry, and some diners have seen Lydia in the form of a petite young girl on the stairs in this old building. Lydia may not be the only ghost here. The lodge's pool was eventually filled in with concrete, but not before a little boy drowned in it. Apparently, the spirit of this little boy likes to hang out at the restaurant. Customers have felt his presence near the bar, especially under it, and he likes to play on the staircase. The employees have placed some jacks under the stairs to give the boy something to play with. A medium has also told the Greenbrier that there's an older man who sits in the back corner of the restaurant who gets quite grumpy when it's loud in the establishment. And then finally, we have the Wheatlands Plantation. Sevierville is located in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. The Wheatlands Plantation is here near a trail that had once been the Great Indian War Path. The man who founded Sevierville, John Sevier, had followed this path in 1780 to engage in a battle with the Cherokee, whom were defeated at the Battle of Boyd's Creek. The battlefield is where the Wheatlands Plantation was built. This was originally known as Boyd's Creek Farm and was established by Timothy Chandler. When he died in 1819, his son John inherited the property. The original farmhouse burned to the ground in 1823, and John built the two-story federal-style plantation house that still exists today. The Queen Anne-style porch and windows were added in 1889. He named it Wheatlands, and it became one of the largest farms in Sevier County, covering 4,600 acres. The farm raised livestock and grew buckwheat, sweet potatoes, hay, oats, and corn. The work was done by 14 enslaved people. John also started a distillery where they manufactured 6,000 gallons of whiskey. During the Civil War, the Union took over the plantation and used it as a winter quarters for the 10th Regiment Cavalry out of Michigan and the 8th Division from Western Pennsylvania. The location allowed them to run raids into Sevierville, Gatlinburg, and Newport. After the war, Chandler began paying the former slaves who were now emancipated and decided to stay on at Wheatlands. Chandler not only paid them, but upon his death in 1875, he left them a section of land on the south side of the property that became known as the Chandler Gap, and a strong black community grew up in this area long into the 20th century. The Chandler family held onto the plantation for 11 generations, finally selling it in 2011 to Richard Parker and John Burns, who restored the house and opened it to the public for tours. Although based on what we could find, it has been closed for several years now and may even be owned privately. Yeah, there were a few reviews. The most recent was back in 2020, and that was just somebody who like walked around the property and was able to see the cemeteries that were on the property, but you can't go into the house anymore, which is so sad because it's this wonderful historic plantation there. I don't know if they just business wasn't well, so they shuttered it or what's going on. There's a lot of no trespassing signs and stuff, too. There are many original structures here, including the house, a smokehouse, the summer kitchen with dining hall, and a loom house. Unfortunately, the distillery burned in the late 1930s. Much of the interior is original as well, with hand-planed railings and windows. The mantles have hand-carved details and entablatures, which those are the flat parts of the mantelpiece, Kelly, that are like between the columns that go up the sides and then the flat piece on the top. There's like three parts of it. Many houses of the time had the standard parlor hall layout, but this one had a central floor plan. The smokehouse was built in the early 19th century and was made from hewn logs with a board and batten door. 
There are so many reasons for this house to be haunted. First, we had that initial Revolutionary War battle, and the bodies of 27 Native Americans killed during that battle were put into a burial mound on the property, and there are two graves for Revolutionary War soldiers. We have also heard that there may have been up to 50 to 69 slaves buried on the property. This was a Civil War headquarters, and John was a Freemason who purposefully built the house on top of a giant geode. I don't know how they know there's a giant geode under there, but lots of things that I looked at claimed that. Interesting. There are also claims that the house has seen 70 deaths, some for murder. One of these murders was of a father by a son who used an iron poker to do the deed. Apparently, the father was jealous that his mother had skipped over him and left the estate to his son upon her death. There's a blood stain that remains on the living room floor, and no amount of cleaning has ever been able to get rid of it. Two women died on the staircase, one from falling and another had a heart attack. Fifteen people died of natural causes in the master bedroom. People who took tours claimed to hear strange sounds like the yells of a man, thudding noises, and a sickening gurgling noise, almost as though a murder is playing out in a residual manner. Several members of the Chandler family that died in the house are thought to still roam the house in the afterlife. People have even seen the apparitions in the gardens. Children who had been enslaved are seen still playing on the property and even play hide-and-seek with visitors. The spirit of a young girl in a blue dress is seen in the house many times on the stairs. Other disembodied voices are heard, and there are shadow figures. The Destination America show Ghost Stalkers visited the plantation in 2014. This was hosted by Chad Lindbergh and John E.L. Tenney. Chad was doing an EVP session in the cellar, and he captured a voice saying, Hi. Now, I always love it when you capture these voices saying hi in an old historic location like this. Because, obviously, we don't know the slang back during the Civil War time or the Victorian era. Did people really say hi? I don't know. Is that more of a modern rendition of hello? I do not know. I just wondered when I heard that play, I'm like, is that like something from back then or a more modern type spirit? John thought he saw a figure in the master bedroom. The gamma radar recorded a lot of energy in there, and then it went completely dead. Chad got tapped on his shoulder and felt really cold in the master bedroom. Now, Chad is very, very dramatic. Anybody who watched Ghost Stalkers, I mean, he would scream like a girl half the time when something would touch him or whatever. And during this one, he was like, he seemed very agitated and very uncomfortable and kept going, stop, don't, leave me alone, leave me alone. So I don't know if he kept feeling like something was trying to touch him and then it finally did. But I was like, just relax. John was in the parlor where the murder happened and he got a scratch on his abdomen that was noticeable. I mean, when they put the camera on it, not only did he have these red marks, but there was even a little bit of blood. So I'm like, something recently did something to him. This may have been in the same place where the father had been stabbed. The Smoky Mountains are an incredibly beautiful part of America. As we said, we've driven through them, but never had the chance to actually hang out for a while. And clearly... Based on all these legends and haunting experiences, this is a place ghost hunters need to check out. Are the Smoky Mountains and all these locations haunted? That is for you to decide. Kelly, I worked out a little road trip for us to go up this way, and I was hoping to do it this year, but I don't know if it's going to work out for us because we're doing something later on this month that some of our spectacular crew members, if we're able to do it, will be able to share in with us. That road trip might get kicked on to next year but hopefully we'll be up there next year. Yes. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. 
Kelly Janae has sent us a message. She said, I listened to your Haunted Cemeteries 25 episode on my way to work this morning. As much as I would love to believe that the February 31st date was used to keep that lady returning from the dead as a witch, according to a Google search, it's more likely that the death date was unknown. February 31st has been used in place of unknown death dates. Also, apparently it can be used to show examples or when trying to show that the data is not true. However, on a headstone, it is most likely because the actual date is not known. I like the witch legend better, LOL. (laughs) Well, we do too, but that makes sense. I'd never heard that before. Right. Had you? No, I hadn't. That's what I told her. I'm like, oh, we had no idea. Thank you so much. (laughs) So now I'm going to be looking for headstones that have February 31st on them just to be like, is that, you know, how they're marking these graves when they don't know? I just always thought if they didn't know, they just put the year. Yeah, I guess I never really contemplated it before. Yeah. So very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Janae. And we also wanted to thank Donnie for his comment in the Spooktacular crew that uh, he really enjoys the show. I know for you, Kelly, sometimes you worry a little bit that people are like when they listen to the earlier shows and then the hosting changes that people will be upset about it or whatever. And uh, he just let you know that he really loves the chemistry between us. And I do, too, obviously. (laughs) As do I. But yes, it is something that always is at the back of my mind. So I appreciated that very much, Donnie. Thank you want to thank you all for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Michael Thompson. Mort's going to be putting you in a chest tomb. I'm the Bone Daddy. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. But it wasn't just the Europeans who felt the peculiar, 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 peculiar ethos. And much of this has been protected since 1935. <laughs> 35 just suddenly jumped forward a year. Yeah. How'd you get five out of four? I don't know. I like the number five. It's my favorite. <laughs> since it's my when? Lucky, <laughs> it's my lucky number. It's always been my lucky number. <laughs>